I'm Betsy Reed, and this is The Discomfort Practice, where I talk to creatives, activists, leaders, scientists, and a host of others about discomfort, about the role it's played in their lives, who they are and what they do in the world, and the value of discomfort in helping us move forward as a society. Discomfort is just the edge of your comfort zone, and on the other side are superpowers. So settle yourself in, and let's get uncomfortable. So I am here today with a guest I've looked forward to interviewing for quite some time after she did a video for the Cambridge Institute for Sustainability Leadership course I lead. It's called Communicating for Influence and Impact. And we've recently done a review of the course and are just including more fresh voices, diverse voices, people who can really add to the perspective of the 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 leaders who come onto this course. And Days Agaji is a great example of a young leader with really incredible depth of perspective for someone who is still quite young. I hate to talk about people's ages, but this is actually a significant <laughs> factor here because Days is 22 and she's a climate activist from London who focuses on regenerative culture, intersectionality, radical social justice and youth political engagement in her work. So obviously the fact that she is young is quite relevant because she is living this experience herself. She herself lives with intersectionality as a black woman, a daughter of immigrants, a professional who grew up in poverty, and someone who's still young. And in 2019, before all this pandemic took off, she was the youngest candidate to stand in the European parliamentary election. She's been described by the Guardian newspaper as a ball of energy, conviction, and warmth. And Daisy's advocacy for racial systemic change has led her to work with many leading charities, NGOs, and grassroots changemakers around the world. She has strong ties with the climate movement, Extinction Rebellion, since its early days. And she's currently a creative director at Earthrise Studios, which is an environmentally friendly, focused, environmentally focused rather, media company, as well as a consultant for a variety of NGOs. She's also an artist in residence, as if all of those things weren't enough, at Phytology and a monthly contributor to Sky TV's climate show. She gave a TEDx talk in 2021 that I loved. It was about how we're going to solve climate change. And she talked about being part of Generation Z, Generation Z for my American friends, and how growing up with an awareness of climate change has shaped her generation and her. She points out the truth that climate change is not the issue. Toxic systems are, and climate change is just a byproduct of that. I couldn't agree more. So I'm really looking forward to diving into a really juicy conversation. This is season four of the Discomfort Practice podcast, and I'm focusing on people who are disrupting, innovating, and inspiring change. And I'm really delighted to welcome a guest who's already making waves and has hopefully many more decades of that ahead of her. So welcome, Days. It's lovely to have you here. Thank you. I love when people read my bio. Um, it kind of like reminds me of where I came from, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And also hopefully makes you a bit uncomfortable about how awesome you are. Because <laughs> you are. You are. No, I am just a person with a very, very good support system. <laughs> like, yeah, I think we'll probably talk about it at one point, but I think everyone can be awesome. We just need the support to get there. Mm, wow. And so many people do not have that. There's so, so mm. much conversation going on. And I actually gave a talk the other day to a group of people who do events. And we talked about how isolating this pandemic has been. It has accelerated 
a trend towards lack of social connection and isolation anyway. So I think a lot of people are longing to have the support to be awesome, but many people don't have it. And it's just become even more incredibly intense because of this pandemic. So we can talk about that. That would be really, that'd be an interesting thing to touch on and maybe tying that to how we can connect and support to each other. So to those who are listening to this podcast today, thank you for connecting to us. We hope that we are part of your support system. Me as the host, each of my guests like days, and also just remember that you are connected. Even if you don't know who else is listening to this podcast, we're part of a community together. So days, I'm going to kick it over to you with the, the first question I always ask everyone, which is what's an uncomfortable moment that shaped who you are and what you do in the world? You could choose more than one. I know you have a few. I would say many uncomfortable moments, <laughs> um, but I, I feel like one for one is it was growing up in poverty. Um, as you can imagine, it is really uncomfortable. And I always like slightly make a tongue, like a uh, tongue in cheek quote where I go, yeah, like growing up in poverty is not cute and it's not fun. <laughs> um, but it's something that made me be able to develop the level of empathy that I hold. Um, but then also be able to really understand the world from a very nuanced perspective. I've lived both as the middle class, like right now, but also as the working class. I've lived in places of where I am the only black person for miles, but also in vibrant cities like London, of where diversity is just part of the fabric. Um, I've kind of lived across many different sides of what it's like to be in the human experience. And I think that's what makes me quite a good conduit to be like the connector between communities that rarely see each other. Um, so I would say that that's what it gives me. Um, and I think secondly would be when I ran for election. Um, and it was a very uncomfortable thing because it's quite funny because the days, if you'd met me a few years ago, I'd be a totally different person. I grew up being quite quiet, quite reserved and really feeling like I, I lacked any like agency in the world and running for election was something that was really uncomfortable for me um, as it kind of forced me to grow um, quite quickly. And I think also it made my family realize how serious I was about the climate crisis um, because it was something that was so desperately out of character. Wow. So as you presented yourself to the world as a candidate to the European Parliament, it actually had an impact on how your family saw you. I find that really interesting and also really hard to believe because you strike me from, you know, the, the, the talks I've seen you do, the research I've done on you before even inviting you. You just seem so comfortable in front of a crowd and, and seemingly extroverted. So it's interesting to hear how you haven't always been that way. Oh, yeah. So I'm definitely a false extrovert. I'm I'm not extroverted. I'm actually very <laughs> introverted. Mm -hmm. People find it weird when I say that. Um, and I feel like I save all of my extrovert energy for moments where I feel like I can change things. Um, <laughs> I think that's the driver for me to kind of step outside of the safe zone and be able to speak to many people. Um, what got me on stage? <laughs> um, so at this point, I was working with Extinction Rebellion. Well, in fact, we can start probably earlier um, because I, it's, it was a really weird childhood I had. I grew up in poverty. Then my mom started her restaurant, sent us to boarding school. But I went to boarding school and went through secondary education, not knowing I was dyslexic, dyspraxic, and I had ADHD. 
till I was around 17. Wow. Yeah. And nobody at your school figured <laughs> that out. I That blows my mind. Wow. Tell me about it. I grew up thinking I was actually really unintelligent because I, I would really love studying, really loved learning, but then it would never show up in my grades. I was a C, D student my whole life. Um, so um, when I was around, I would say around 14, my English teacher realized that what I write on the paper never really matches up to what I say in class. Mm. Um, and he pushed me to become part of the debating club. And I thought that was very on call at the time. Um, <laughs> but that push led me to kind of find my own in learning how to speak and learning how to use my voice as the way that I communicate rather than written language. Um, and that was like, I guess, like the unofficial training for the work that I do today. Um, yeah. That's just come in handy. Um, and then I would say skipping forward to my first like public talk, because um, even though I was a public speaker, and I had done that before, like this, these were kind of like, I saw that as something that I did when I was in secondary school, rather than something that's a part of like my everyday. Um, and when I was in university, I joined Extinction Rebellion. Um, I worked there for a few months um, in the lead up to the first rebellion in April. And then during that rebellion, I was asked whether I would be able to go on Sky News to talk to an interviewer wow. a journalist and I said absolutely not <laughs> um, <laughs> ah, so you were like nope no thank you yeah no 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 and then they couldn't find anyone else and I was like okay I guess I will do it just out of the moment of them not being able to find anyone else to do it um and I went on that I I spoke and I cried for hours after um mm. but that moment was this moment I I I think it was like the beginnings of me kind of stepping into that discomfortable zone of having to be the extrovert for the thing that I love because I know nature itself can't talk in the way that I can um, and having to do something that made me feel mildly uncomfortable but for the greater good of, of all life that I love. Wow, what a great illustration of the value of having a discomfort practice and sometimes that being actually what you need to bring to the world. And can I ask, are you completely comfortable now speaking or is it still something that's uncomfortable for you it's something you'd rather not have to do but you realize it's kind of your vocation at this point <laughs> yeah I think a bit of both definitely is something that like if I didn't have to I would not mm -hmm. <laughs> um but then also I I feel like I have found a comfort in this because I've been able to recognize I can only come as I am and mm. that is either to be accepted or rejected by whoever's the receiver and that is something I don't have control over um so therefore it's something that I really don't have the headspace to worry about um, <laughs> and I think yeah. like once I started reframing that every single talk that I did became more and more unscary because all I know is I can try my best and my best is good enough for me I wish I'd figured that one out a long time ago because I was I was speaking at something recently and I, I'm trying out my new speech, the thing that has taken shape in me since the pandemic. And it feels like it's mm. the speech I was born to give, at least at this moment. And I realized I'd also settled into my own comfort of thinking, well, some people are really going to hear this and some people are going to think I'm nuts because I'm going to ask them to visualize and be really present with themselves. And this is like a corporate, you know, big global event kind of thing. And I'm I'm about to ask them to breathe. So 
it's such a freeing thing, isn't it? To realize <laughs> that you're not for everyone. And that's totally the way it works. It's okay. Exactly. And you'll yeah. be so surprised how I feel like everyone kind of longs for this. I, I think this is also why people are attracted to young people. Is everyone yearns for that innocence and feeling like anything is possible. Mm-hmm. And even when I go into the corporate space, and I tell everyone, I also do breathing exercises. I do little meditations before my talk. Mm-hmm. I, I invite people to be here. And I invite people to not just bring their role, but bring themselves and why they are perfect for their role. Um, and why they are the ones who are doing it rather than any other sustainability consultant, any other head of sustainability. I ask them to bring themselves. And a lot of the time they find that really uncomfortable, really confronting. But by the end of the session, they're there talking to me about their childhood memories of foraging with their father. They're there yeah. talking to me about the the woods that they walk with their children. You know, everyone has that innate, like in inside of them. It's just feeling like it's safe enough to allow it out. And I think that's kind of where people like us hold that space of communicating the safety of being open, of being vulnerable and actually seeing vulnerability as a superpower. Yeah. Oh, I want to put that out to listeners right now and just ask people, take three breaths and then ask yourself how you can connect to who you are. What's special about you that you can bring to the world? Because this is really, really important right now because the systems in which we work, which we will get into next, the systems in which we exist are not are not meant for our thriving and our survival. They're meant to create profit. They're, they're toxic systems. They're not necessarily good for us. But if we can remember our humanity and our place in this beautiful ecosystem in which we exist, rather than as machines or as people who have to dominate other people or systems or nature, if you just remember the woods that you enjoy the garden you like being in, the the adventures you had as a child out in nature, whatever that was for you. Reconnecting to that is a really powerful place to start from, isn't it? Definitely. I think um, what I call nature connection work, it's, it's the heart of all the work that I do. And even yesterday I was at a talk and I basically said how climate like is not that important. And then, um, and then, um, <laughs> not what yeah. I expected you to say. <laughs> exactly. So then, um, the moderator goes, um, but how much of your work is actually about climate? And in hopes to trip me up. And I said, climate and environment is only a way to get people to recognize who they want to show up to and who they want to show up as in this world. Yeah. And that, you know, and then she was like, whoa, <laughs> you know, and I think it is about like, you know, when we start to see ourselves as part of nature, we start to see the importance of not just knowing the tree species that we share this world with or the birds that we share this world with, but, but we need to know ourselves as well. Yeah, and absolutely. what parts of us are living within the toxic system that we don't like, what part of us have absorbed part of the toxic system. And we need to be able to find ways to purge it out and say, I want to be better. I can be better. How do I achieve this? And have the support mm. to be able to go on that journey. You're making a lot of mm, noises. I'm so in agreement because <laughs> both of us in our work, we talk a lot about toxic systems and how capitalism is working just fine. It's working as intended, but it's the wrong mm. system. It's not meant for humans and beings on this earth to thrive. So let's really bring it home for, for people listening right now. What does that mean? And how, how are each of us enmeshed in them? How do we need to detox 
what do we need to detox mm. from and then how do we detox? So I think what, what we can recognize is the world that we're currently living in is, is just not fit for human flourishment. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like it's, it's not even fit for sustaining human life as we're seeing with climate change, but mm-hmm. definitely not fit for people living happy lives, lives of meaning, lives of purpose. And that's what we're starting to see. We're starting to see high levels of depression amongst young people, anxiety amongst young people, because we are recognizing that this is not the world that we were promised. This mm-hmm. is not the hopeful future um, that, that we've kind of brought up to believe would be our reality. Um, and that's pretty difficult. But during this time, especially as we get older and as we form into adulthood, we start to experience parts of the world which tell us nothing can change. And whether this is racism, sexism, homophobia, ableism, and all the others, we start to basically be ground down the, the, the level of hope, like the hopeless romantic in us. I say that like young people hold innately starts to be ground down. And by the time you're an adult, you are already in the, this is the way the world works kind of thing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and you lose hope. And then you conform Oof. to the system and you conform to a system that you thought was toxic and you know it's toxic, and you know it's not good for you, but you have no other choice to, um, or at least it feels like that. And what we have to do is that we have to hold on to this hope that young people have, and we have to kind of nurture what, you know, lots of psychologists call like the inner child of, you know, the child that holds on to that possibility of everything is possible, things can change, and we have to start to cultivate it, and we mix that in with the knowledge and experience of living in this world that we've already gained, and then go, how do we do this differently, you know, and I think there's a level of co-collaboration, there's a level of expanding our imagination capacity to really hold this, there are many different ways to kind of get our inner child happy to the point of where it guides us to create change in the way that we know we can. Mm, and reclaiming that is really happy work because, I mean, if you just think about it, get your inner child out and play with them again. I mean, many people listening probably have children or grandchildren. And whenever you interact with them, it's as simple as just letting yourself be childlike with them and remembering who you were as a child, what you lost exactly. and where hope died and reclaiming that part of yourself. And that's fun exactly. work, I hope, right? It's kind of oh, sad. Oh, yeah, it's so fun. Like, you should see yeah. me as, like, a very, like, you know, grown 22-year-old. I love climbing on trees. Mm. I love barking at dogs. Like, <laughs> and <laughs> I these are it. things that people find totally weird. And to be honest, I find weird too. But I know that those are the things that have been suppressed from you guys shouldn't act like this. You shouldn't do this. And what I do is go against that. Or even if there's a dinner time of where, I want, you know, like something from my childhood or I want something that my mum wouldn't ever allow me to have. (laughs) I Mm. allow my inner child to enjoy and indulge in that joy. And that's really important for us because that's how we keep youthful forever. You know, and I always talk about youth climate activists. And there's a part of me like a few years ago, I was like, now I'm 20. I can't really call myself youth. And then I'm like, no, Ah. actually I can. And I hope to call myself youth for the rest of my life um and recognize that I am youthful but then also recognize that there are people younger than me who need my support and I should be of service to them as they're Mm. cultivating youth too I love that staying youthful is just such a nice ambition to have and and completely achievable because 
Mm. I'm in my 40s and really finding that the way I've aged is very different than other people I know who are the same age and maybe wear life a bit more heavily or, you know, they've had years of not being able to sleep because they have children. And so I, I do feel like I can bring some really youthful energy to the world and I'm grateful for that. And part of it was finding a place that I truly enjoy living. I moved from London to Barcelona mm. six years ago to kind of shed the weight of the do, do, do grind, you know, work culture in London can be pretty intense. And so I, yeah, I think it's a really a service to the world to maintain your, your youthful perspective and energy. And anybody can do that. Your generation, Generation Z, you have grown up knowing about climate change. You've experienced recessions and instability, and you know, you have a much more realistic perspective about the world. And mm. how do you balance that, that knowledge that you're not inheriting a world that is as glowing as say even Gen X or people of my parents' generation, you know, inherited. They thought the world was theirs. They could do anything. They were in a place of privilege and wealth. And, you know, we have a very different situation and, and Generation Z has a very different situation. What do you, what does your generation bring to the world that you need to not lose? What innovation, what perspective do people who are perhaps older and think, ah, they don't have as much experience need to really stop and listen to and be like, they have lived experience of the real world in ways that a lot of older generations don't. It's reminded me of um, uh, William Blake, uh, one of mm. the poets of my very heart. And he has the songs of experience and the songs of innocence. And weirdly enough, the songs of innocence are the ones that hold the hope for a better world, are the ones that challenge the status quo. And the songs of experience are quite a lot darker. Um, and when we kind of look, look at the world, I think young people, have, we've been forced to be resilient because we have faced, you know, recession, climate crisis, cost of living crisis currently, uh, and a bunch of other different difficulties as a generation together. Um, but then also, we are fucking tired of this. <laughs> yeah. And we have the hearts and the minds to be able to really start to look at the world in a different way and expect more because we feel mm. like we deserve more, you know? And I'm, I love seeing like some of the statistics around Gen Zs and jobs and Gen Z are more likely to basically decide to be unemployed than work with companies who don't match moral standards that they hold. Mm. that's amazing that means companies will have to change if they want a workforce in the future you know gen z knows their power we know our agency um but then also we have the hearts and minds to dream bigger than what already exists and i think that's what we give to the world and all we need is the support and the holding of different generations who have come before us so we can take ownership and make things change Wow. I just wrote that down. We know our power. We know our agency. That excites me because at the moment um, I teach fourth years at a university in Barcelona. I teach leadership. And so they're 21, 22, 23. And I ask them on occasion, like, how are you feeling about the world? And their answer is always shit. <laughs> but yeah. I see how smart they are. I see what they have within them, what they're capable of. And yeah. uh, I want to be there you know, handing them the arrows to shoot at systems that are not working for them. And it's, it's, I'm excited about the future and it's because exactly. of who I work with. So tell us about 
Well, the intersectional focus of your work, because I imagine most people who listen to the Discomfort Practice podcast, you know, they they opt into not easy listening. So a lot of people probably know a lot about intersectionality and intersectionalism. But let's just sort of explain why it's so important to understand what it is and why it's so important to have that in our mindsets. What is intersectionality? What is an intersectional approach? Hmm. I think the, the way I usually coin it is holistic because I'm a woo-woo girl. Um, <laughs> but it's basically seeing the world for the complicated mess it is. Um, <laughs> too often we're trying to fight fires in categories and not recognizing that they are all interlinked with each other. And especially when we start to look at social issues, we have to realize that someone's identity, like, it's not just being working class. It's not just being an ethnic minority. It's about how these things can collide to create further disadvantage. Um, and that's why, like, you know, as you said before in the intro, like my life has been this rude awakening of the realization that the world is very intersectional. I think when growing up in poverty and then like shifting economic class, I started to gain many opportunities that I would have never experienced before. And that just showed what having a little bit of money would do. But then in turn, even with that, I am still a black woman. (laughs) I am still here in this body, in a place that doesn't accept me. Um, And I think it's just recognizing that the, the solutions to the problems that we hold, they have to look at everything holistically. They have to look at everything interlinked. And that's where intersectionality plays a part. Mm. It feels like a good moment to actually bring in what I know is your personal experience with the disproportionate impact of environmental degradation and climate change on ethnic minority and working class communities. Because I know you've Mm. experienced the impact of air pollution. So yeah, if you could just talk about that, I think it really drives home what you're talking about. Yeah, so growing up, um, I grew up in North London in Tottenham, uh, which is like an area that's actually quite well known for um, the social issues that happen there. Um, And yeah, and the economic class that is there, most people are working class. Um, And that was basically my everyday. And growing up there, I was very ill. I had lots of issues with my breathing and so did everyone. Um, so I kind of grew up thinking that was perfectly normal. And then when I moved to Lincolnshire after my family um, sent me to boarding school, uh, all of that went and we just presumed it was an age thing. Um, but then when I came back to London, when I was around 16, it all came back again. Um, the breathing issues, skin issues, and I didn't know what was going on. I obviously was very upset as a very vain 16-year-old. Um, <laughs> and I went online searching for my own answers since I didn't feel like the doctors were particularly helpful. Um, and then that's how I found out about air pollution and how it affects ethnic minorities, how people living in areas like mine are more likely to have shorter life, ex- ex- uh, shorter life expectancies more likely to have developmental issues um and then finding out that these kind of patterns of total lack of care and lack of love for ethnic minorities for working class people for people living on the margins was not just something that was happening in my city or air pollution it's larger it's the climate crisis and the same patterns of lack of care show up 
in all of the issues that we face. It's such a beautiful way of bringing home and starting with, you know, home turf for a lot of listeners. And for me, the UK, London, a place that, you know, you might live, you might visit that actually it's there. It's not just some global thing. We're talking about outsourcing the impact of climate change to the global South, the disproportionate impact of so many things in our systems on people who have less power, because really when you have, you know, when you have Oh, embedded racism in systems when you have poverty that's often linked to the color of your skin you know there's there are these disproportionate impacts that have absolutely everything to do with things like colonialism so in talking about intersectional identities i know one of your past talks was on climate women's rights and racial justice all the same all the same fight i'll put that in the show notes because it's worth listeners listening to and thinking, oh yeah, these are all absolutely linked. You can't sort of fight for justice for one group without really fighting for justice for all of them. Like you talked about, you can't put out one fire without recognizing it's all part of the same thing. So I, I just think it's so important for people to understand this. And, you know, those of us who have a relative amount of privilege, which can come from a range of parts of your identity, you know, I am I am white and from a powerful country, but I'm still a woman and I'm still queer. So, you know, there are certain (laughs) certain parts that are not privileged, but there are certain parts that are. So we don't get in the bun fight of how much privilege we have. It's about seeing that we have an opportunity to create space for others. But I wanted to dive into colonialism a little bit more Mm because you have a unique perspective on this. And I've talked to past guests on this podcast a lot about, well, indigenous guests, people from indigenous cultures about rediscovering ancient wisdom, rediscovering our own roots. Because as a Londoner, you have deep roots in old wisdom because of where your family comes from, you know, sort of old ways of being with land and community. So how can we learn from the ancient wisdom that has often been repressed, scrubbed out, or just forgotten? as we've, you know, as we've taken over people's land, as we have sort of modernized things and we have this incredibly Eurocentric or, you know, American Eurocentric way of being in the world and capitalism is very built on that. How can we remember, rediscover deep, deep ancient wisdom from countries that our families may have come from, from countries our friends, families may have come from, how do we need that? And how can it help us to address colonialism? That is a very complicated question. <laughs> so go oh, for it. I Take love it. a complicated question. Mm, um, so I think like my whole life has been kind of being straddled between like almost, I always say like I lived in mini Nigeria in London um, <laughs> and knowing about my own indigenous culture and Knowing about my own indigenous culture was really important growing up because it was the basically the non-Western perspective. It was the one that focused on the fact that we are in we are linked with Mother Earth and the fact that yeah, like for example, um one of the Ibo goddesses is called Ajal Allah. Um, and she is literally the ground that we walk on every day. So therefore all ground is sacred. Um, the ideas of like she holds our ancestors in her womb so it's like this connection with indigenous ancestral knowledge but then also she is the goddess of creativity of life of light Um, and these kind of like lessons from cultures like that are really important to kind of reframe the way that we view the world 
But then there's also this recognition that in the last couple of years, I have been kind of going back to understanding my own relationship with the UK. This is a land that I feel I have belonging to, but then also a land that I know that a lot of people don't see my belonging to. Um, and in this, it's been really interesting to kind of look into the history of this land. And I think the talk that you were referring to was the one where I connected the enclosures right back to colonialism, right back to capitalism, and then back to the climate crisis. Um, so in the UK, in the 15th century, we had the enclosures, and this was a time of where the elite, the rich, took the land, took the commons away from the average person, creating this culture of disconnect that but everything wrong with this world. Um, and I think it's really important, especially being like in the Western world to recognize our own indigenous culture. Um, and like the ground that I'm standing on right now is, is known to be linked with Celtic traditions, which is very earth-based, very loving to nature and the natural world and holds mm. very similar belief systems to the ones that we know of already from the Amazon to um, India. Um, there are so many like connections that when humans gather together, it's just we are more separate to those understandings of the ancestors of our own land. Um, and I think going into this space of learning a lot about Celtic folklore and tradition and how that further influences um my work that I do today and there is something about recognizing that with the enclosures we also have experienced this disconnection to this land and what's happened with colonialism was this further expansion of that disconnection and we are currently in a trauma response to being disconnected from the land and what we have to do is we have to heal this from the root we have to recognize that we also were colonized just by our own people. Um, and what we have to do is like look at the behaviors that have come out of that, this level of disconnect, exploitation, lack of care, and deal with that. And then root our actions and love, duty, and care, the opposites to what has got us here. And I think that's the only way that we can really address the climate crisis. Oh, I'm amening over here in my head because <laughs> I mean, oh, where to start? So I, for the past seven years, I've been a qualified yoga teacher and mm. I see people finding healing. And I, I also in my work in sustainability and leadership, I find people looking to indigenous and ancient ways of being wise. But I also recently have really started to dive into my own heritage, which is Celtic and and finding those those ancient traditions that are my own, because I think there's something Ooh. very special about that. And a lot of people in the West in particular have really found connection and healing in the traditions of other cultures. You know, we, we do lots of things from ancient mm. Hinduism and Buddhism and yoga. Um, and I think it's because people have people like inherently know they have longing for those mm -hmm. roots. And they mm -hmm. see roots in other cultures. <laughs> but yeah. what happens to our own, you know, <laughs> like reconnecting back to that. Yeah. And I think particularly in Europe and well, particularly in Europe, you know, I live in Spain now, the colonializing and the, the sort of wiping out and repressing of indigenous cultures was so long ago, we've forgotten Ooh. about it. Whereas in places, North America, Australia, South America, it's much more present. It's much more recent. Yeah. And so... 
I think it's easier to focus on those cultures, but, you know, if you're listening to this and you are of European heritage or, you know, you don't know your own indigenous land focused, connected traditions and cultures, I encourage you to find those out, to do your own reading, because there's something very special about doing the things that run in your own blood that are in your own genes because you have a connection to those things and it's really truly special there is something like a like a dear friend jay griffin who's an amazing writer she said something that was so profound to me this summer that is you know one of those things that you 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 already know but once someone says it to you you're like wow this has Mm -hmm. changed everything and she said um the definition of nativity is to know and that reframes the way that we experience like the idea of you know there's one thing being connected to the land through ancestry but then also there's one thing to be connected to the land by knowing you know and I sit between these two kind of you know thought school of thoughts of one being connected to my Ibo ancestry the Nyoma people of the Niger Delta where my family's from and having this like visceral reaction in my body to being connected to that land but then also I'm so connected to this land through knowing knowing this land so well um and i think there is something about kind of trying to find whether we can have both you know we can know things that are happening in uh, like in the in the east because i know people really love it we can know things and feel connected to things that are happening in the amazon but then also having that connecting back to our own roots our own ancestors in the pursuit of like finding knowledge Oh, yeah, I love it. Connecting and connection is a theme that comes up over and over again to everyone I talk to on this podcast. And it is out there in the world right now. It is an energy. It is a revolution. Mm. It is an evolution because we are all longing for connection to land, to each other and to ourselves. And I think a lot of people are rediscovering that right now. And you talk a lot about community care and community action. And I wrote down a great quote from you, just a phrase, how do we take care of each other in moments of intense pressure? And I would love to hear your answer to that because I think it's quite a beautiful one. So how do we take care of each other in moments of intense pressure? Mm, I think, yes, we we ask. I, I, <laughs> we ask, <laughs> which I, I think is like one of the hardest things um, to kind of find ways to be selfless as well. Because in this world, we are told that we are all that we have, which is just simply not true. Um, We have communities, we have people who will hold us when we can't hold ourselves. But then in turn, we also know it's our moral responsibility to hold others too. Um, So even currently now, I'm on the move because I'm watching my friend's court case and I knew she needed me. So I was like, I'm going to cancel everything I can and I'm going to be here for you. Um, And when we start to do that, we will feel supported, we will feel held, and we will feel not just as though our strength is coming from ourselves, but our strength is coming from all the people around us. Um, At the beginning, I talked about how when I listen to things about like my bio and like have this kind of like moment of like, fuck, I've really come from nothing to something. And I don't think I'm special. I just know that I have the community to support me. And I'm just so fortunate to have that community. And I hope that we find ways of loving and caring one another in this earth where everyone can have that community too. 
and those communities of care aren't special. They're just something that we all deserve and that we can all be a part of giving to someone else and all be a part of receiving as well. Uh, Days, that is beautiful. And also, I think it's really important for people listening to this who might have, they might be activists, they might be leaders, they might have those tendencies, but it can often be the most difficult for people like us to ask for help and to allow others Mm. to help us because we're so used to being in the role of helper. But that is really, it's a really lonely place to be and it also isn't sustainable. So Exactly. Yeah. I had this moment. Um, so in my last job, I had this moment of I, I was always the check-in girl. I held the well-being. That was my thing. And I would always do these check-ins. And then one of the staffers went, um, you always check in on everyone, but who's checking in on you? <laughs> and I was like, what? Yeah. <laughs> and then I was like, actually, who is checking in on me? Do I allow people to check in on me? And that's something that I'm still learning to work through as someone who's, you know, been through such hardship I I do feel sometimes in my head the kind of critical self is telling me you are on your own therefore you take care of yourself and it's very difficult to kind of surrender and showing that vulnerability that vulnerability can be a superpower but it can be something that's very scary it's a trauma response quite often to be the caretaker exactly that's been my homework this year actually learning that people show up for me and it sounds like it's the same and allowing them yeah. Oh, yeah, because I, I recognize I'm like, I always say this, but like, I have been a giver for very long. I'm in my receiving era. <laughs> Amen. I'm in the era where I'm going to allow myself to receive the support, to receive the help, to receive the love. That's where I am right now. <laughs> and well, we can and- swap that in, you know, we can swap that in, we can swap that out. But ultimately, we're going to have to try and find ways to balance it. And receiving isn't bad. It isn't I, something we should shy away from. I could not agree more. And I, I read a phrase in a book a few years ago that completely transformed my perspective on this, which is that you're allowing someone a place in your life. Why deny them a place in your life by insisting on doing everything yourself? And when you think of it that way, and you think about how much we value community and building community, you have to allow other people to have a place in your life to allow them to be part of your community and for them to feel Ooh. like it's a fair exchange. Otherwise, it's quite it's quite disingenuous in a way when it's just, no, yeah. no, I give to you. I don't take anything. It's you're just like, well, why are you so great? And you think I need help. It's kind of <laughs> if you flip it like that. It kind of changes the perspective on it. Diz, you brought this beautifully full circle back to community and connection. So one final question from me. And it's not necessarily an easy one, but what do you want people listening to this podcast to think, to do, and to be or become? Wow. I know. <laughs> it's I just think, a small one. <laughs> I, I hope that everyone can start their journey of inner work to think who they want to show up to in this world, but then also recognizing the faults that we all hold. And figuring out ways to try and amend those faults. I would like them to be their truest form of themselves. Um, themselves that's untraumatized. Themselves that are like the children that they were. And then kind of cultivating that straight into adulthood. I always say um, when people ask me what do they do to save the climate. I always say one, it's not about saving. <laughs> Remove the ego. And then two. It's about basically how do we give every single action 
the intention of Love, Duty and Care, not just for ourselves, but our communities, our earth, everything, everyone, every being, every form of consciousness. And how do we do that every day? And so I think you... the world would radically change if we did that. So think about yeah. it, just like in your day, you're going to your morning coffee. Are you going to be nice to the barista? Are you going to have a conversation and be human? Are you going to think about the sourcing of your coffee beans? Are you going to, you know, it's like thinking about the, the intent of everything you do and making mm. sure it is rooted, rooted in the morals you hold. And just Love. think if like politicians woke up and did that, I think we would have very different policies. <laughs> well, actually, um, it's going to come up slightly before I air this interview, but I recently did an interview with the former economic minister for Costa Rica, and she herself is fairly young, but she was the economic minister during the height of the pandemic. And mm. she talked about showing up to be the minister for economy for an entire country in love every day. And asking herself, how could she show up in love for the people of her country? And just yeah. think of that. If every government minister in every place in the world showed up with love every day, woof. Whoa. Exactly. <laughs> we'd have very different lives, wouldn't it we? It would be crazy, you know. Yeah. And also, it's kind of like it's on many scales, you know. Like I always try to, I always say I don't fear death because I feel like I've lived a life that's good enough that it in, if it ended today, it'll be fine because I base all of my actions in that. And I hold myself to the standards I hold, to, I hope to hold politicians by. Um, but then also having the softness to realize I fuck up sometimes. I do have my crummy days. I do have my moody moments. But holding all of that as part of the human experience. Yeah. Showing up as human is truly powerful. And showing up as a human who gets to have bad days and flaws, I'm mm. still getting comfortable with this because it is really hard not to beat yourself up for those when you're used to being the helper, the check, the check-in girl, the yeah. person who's a leader, but you get to have bad days too. And sometimes that's the most important thing people can see from you, you know, is you being human. Exactly. Yeah. And having that softness for yourself. And the, mm. I, I think there's something, especially my own journey, I feel like I was very good at being soft on others, but not on myself. If mm -hmm. someone else messed up, I would go, here's how we all do it right. If I messed up, I will berate myself. And then yeah. I realized, what if I was soft to myself? What if I was my own lover and I showed myself the softness that I show to others? Uh, and it it's makes true. you a far less crabby person. <laughs> Yeah. And it's, I'm, I'm digging up your out of office that I got back from you today because I, I don't know if you can remember <laughs> it off the top of your head, but it's beautiful because it is about being, being soft. Okay. Here, I'm going to, I'm going to read it. Um, it's basically days is out of office. Cause I have an out of office that tells people what to expect from me. And then I, you know, have a life and I'm doing things and I'm not going to answer their emails or WhatsApps right away. So there's you're out of office or well, the, the, the thing at the bottom of your emails let me dig this up basically it's about how the the earth works in seasons and we're part of nature and we all need times of rest and so you're going to be checking your email less frequently and it, it was just a beautiful example of how to slow down and go with the seasons yeah. because we are nature as you've already said and i i just think that's the thing to leave people with right like exactly. we are nature and the thing at the end is, is, yeah, it's like we don't expect nature to be in full bloom all year round. And we shouldn't expect that of ourselves either. You know, and I think there's something that I've learned in the many, in the harsh way, but it's about 
when we start to frame the climate crisis and all of the other crises as an issue of boundaries, we start to realize having boundaries for ourselves is also that self-care. And I know mm. that the world, that's the go, go, go world, wants me to answer my emails within 10 minutes. But then I know that's something that I don't want to be a part of and that I reject. And that's a yeah. thinking that I don't love. And I have to show up with that kind of grit and resilience to say, actually, no, I'm putting my boundary down and saying, please respect it. And if we all have better boundaries, yeah, like it would, it would be real game changing, you know? Um, but yeah, it's like we have to challenge the system in order for it to even look at itself to think whether it's doing the right thing. Um, and I love how I, whenever I get emailed, I always get another email after saying how everyone loves my out of office and that they Same. won't expect me to get back to them. <laughs> Which is Same. perfect. <laughs> I've had a few people adopt the approach and be like, I mean, it's a form of boundary setting. So think exactly. about this. If you're listening, use your out of office. What kind of boundary do you want to set with that? And what yeah. people can expect from you? Because you'll find 99.9% .9 of people are entirely happy to wait for your response, knowing your boundaries. So test it. Exactly. See yeah. See it works. Well, yeah. Days, I'm going to let you get back to being there for your friend, being in support. I am so glad we got to catch up because I've been looking forward to oh, this. Same. <laughs> life is busy, but I'm definitely going to have you back. So thank you so yes, much please. for <laughs> who you are being in the world and what you're bringing with such tenacity outside of your comfort zone as a natural introvert. And it's just good to know there are people like you in the world because it makes me know that I'm part of a tribe. So to everyone listening to this, check out Days. I will put her stuff on in the show notes and follow her rise and rise and rise as a young person who is a leader and will continue to be a leader and a voice who should be listened to. Thank you, Days. Thank you. Thanks for getting uncomfortable with me. If you enjoyed this episode... Follow and like The Discomfort Practice wherever you listen to podcasts. Leave me a five-star and written review and share this with other people. Help me to reach new audiences with this idea that consciously practicing discomfort helps us to individually and collectively discover our superpowers and create a society and a planet where everyone can thrive. Thank you so much to my guests all season. Go back and listen to a few more episodes to hear more of them. They are wonderful humans doing amazing things in the world. Thanks to my team who helped me produce this podcast and for those who inspire me through their writing, their conversation, and their support. So that's all from me for now. Follow me on Instagram at the Betsy Reed if you want to get to know me a bit better, some of my thoughts. And in the meantime, stay uncomfortable.